What are you saying, sweetie? I'm going to be sad. What you're hearing right now is my son, Leon, discovering for the first time that death is not something that just happens to the ants crawling on the sidewalk or the worms in our backyard or to other people, but that one day, hopefully someday far, far into the future, when he is old and gray, he will also die. When what? When I die. You're going to be sad when you die? Yeah. Yeah. Hey. It's sad when people die. I actually can't believe that I caught this moment on tape. My husband Eric, Leon, our daughter Margot, and I were all sitting around our dining room table eating lunch. Margot had just been born, and Leon had just turned three. We were eating zucchini sandwiches, the sun was beaming in through the window, and during a moment of quiet, in between Margot's newborn cry, Leon noticed that the zinnias on our table were wilting. I started recording because I thought we were just going to have a conversation about why flowers wilt and how they die. It ended up being the most heartbreaking conversation I've had as a parent. What made you think of that, honey? Is it because we were talking about the flowers dying? Yeah. I don't want to die. You can hear how Eric and I want to immediately reassure Leon. Sweetie, you're not going to for a yeah, long time. You're not going to for a long time, sweetie. I don't like it but also acknowledge his worries. You're worried about that, huh? Yeah. I just wanna not die at all. Yeah. That's how I feel too, sweetheart. Leon's emotions are so raw. And though this conversation is hard to hear, I want you to know that it ends well. Leon came to sit on my lap, and then his mind quickly moved on to questions about the suspicious-looking zucchini in his sandwich. What is that? Zucchini. That's zucchini. What's on the zucchini? It's like a yogurt sauce. Oh. I love you. He even ended up cracking a funny joke, which I will share with you later in this episode. A child's mind is just miraculous, isn't it? Leon's thoughts about death can easily surface, but they can also just as easily retreat when he needs a break. It seems like for a lot of us adults, we often don't want these thoughts to surface unless they have to. Maybe because we don't like the way they make us feel. Or because we fear that they might linger longer than we would like. We may hope that we can keep these thoughts at bay until we are directly confronted by illness or by death. That these thoughts can remain deep in our psyche and not affect our everyday lives. But is that true? Do thoughts about death, whether conscious or unconscious, influence how we act? According to the social psychologist Sheldon Solomon, the answer is yes. Sheldon Solomon is a professor of psychology at Skidmore College in New York and has spent his career studying the effects of our uniquely human awareness of death on behavior. Uh, in the 1980s, you know, we would go around talking and we'd be like, oh, Ernest Becker says that fear of death affects everything. And people That's Sheldon. Like, oh, he and his colleagues Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski developed what they called terror management theory in the mid-1980s. Terror management theory posits that our awareness of our own mortality impacts our daily lives in profound ways. And people be like, oh, you know, that's bovine excrement. That's, I don't think about death. And 
even if some people do, it, it can't be as potent or pervasive as what you guys are claiming. And so then we Undaunted by critics, Sheldon and his colleagues went on to conduct decades of research investigating the influence of death on human affairs. And what they found and the evidence to support it is compelling. Terror management theory is now a robust and empirically supported theory that is studied across the globe. Sheldon Solomon, Jeff Greenberg, and Tom Pazinski went on to co-author The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life, which introduced terror management theory to a wider audience. The Guardian called it an important, superbly readable, and potentially life-changing book. I wanted to interview Sheldon Solomon to learn more and to better understand how our awareness of our own eventual death might affect how we choose to live. Hi, Sheldon. Hello. Hi. How's everything? To put our conversation into context, I interviewed Sheldon a few months ago during the first phase of the pandemic. Since then, we've had another surge of coronavirus cases, many more people have died, and George Floyd was killed in police custody. Needless to say, Death and so much more has been on our minds. Sheldon Solomon, Jeff Greenberg, and Tom Pazinski's terror management theory seems more relevant now than ever. I asked Sheldon to explain it. What we call terror management theory is um, derived from the work of a cultural anthropologist, uh, the late Ernest Becker, who in the 1970s wrote a book uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize called The Denial of Death. And what Becker said in a proverbial nutshell is that in many ways, people are the same as any living creature in that, as Darwin pointed out, we are biologically predisposed to want to survive. Uh, both in terms of self-preservation as well as reproduction. And so we're no different than uh, uh, anything that's alive. On the other hand, Darwin pointed out, and Becker wants us to notice, that uh, we're not the same as other creatures, that we've got a big forebrain, and that makes us, as uh, people know, able to do some things that other creatures can't, uh, specifically we can think abstractly and symbolically to the point where we can literally imagine something that doesn't yet exist and then take the products of our imagination and make them real. And of course, that's awesome for staying alive. And it's also quite exciting. And uh, one of the things that Becker points out is that we're so smart that we actually realize that we exist. And again, quite exciting to be alive and to know it, but also horrifying to realize from time to time that like all living things, our lives are of finite duration and that we too will someday die. And what Becker argues is that the awareness of the inevitability of death uh, which is an unanticipated byproduct, byproduct of our vast intelligence, that could have been the most important event in the history of humankind. Because not only do we realize we're going to die someday, we also realize that we could die at any time uh, for reasons that we could never anticipate or control. And on top of that, we realize that uh, we're basically animals, just ambulatory piles of blood and guts. And uh, if that's all we thought about, I, I, I'm going to die someday. I can walk outside and get smote by a comet or a pandemic, and I'm a breathing piece of defecating meat, no more enduring or significant than a lizard or a potato. We would just be overwhelmed with existential terror. And what Becker hypothesized is that we manage that terror uh, by embracing culturally constructed belief systems. He called them cultural worldviews that give us each a sense uh, that we as individuals are persons of value in a world of meaning. Uh, and what he insists is that whether we're aware of it or not, uh, our beliefs about the nature of reality 
and our sense that we're valuable people in the world in which we inhabit, uh, that that's what allows us to stand up in the morning and that we are motivated, uh, mostly unconsciously, to ward off death anxiety by perpetuating the belief that life has meaning and we have value. And I've been long-winded, but that's terror management theory in a nutshell. Well, thank you for explaining that. And I want to, of course, explore that further. But I I first just want to better understand um, how or at what age we first become aware of death. Because as I mentioned to you, I have two young children. Um, one is a infant, and I'm just amazed by her because I think she probably has no idea that one day she's going to die. And to have a period in your life where you're not aware of that must be quite amazing. And then my other child, who's now, he's three and a half, and he is acutely aware that death exists, and he's actually aware that one day he will die. And he's been asking questions about this since he was two and a half. And it's been hard to figure out how to answer them, but I'm curious just from your research, at what age do we really become aware of our own death? Yeah, great question. Now, of course, like anything, it varies, uh, but the clinical literature is quite clear. And here I'm following Erwin uh, Yalom in a book called Existential Psychotherapy. There's a chapter about um, death and childhood. And um, anywhere from age two onwards, um, surely most of us are, as far as we can tell, all of us come into the world prone to anxiety, uh, but not specifically aware of the inevitability of death. Um, but by age two, by the time kids are talking, um, some of them are aware of and concerned about death, even in situations where they've had no direct contact with it. And so, you know, some kids, a pet dies, a grandparent dies, and they have a direct confrontation with these existential concerns. Other times, um, not at all. Uh, so I remember when one of my kids at about age three or four uh, just said, I can't imagine myself ever dying daddy, can you? Mm. And so same thing with our two kids. I, I was quite surprised at the extent to which they were concerned about uh, these existential affairs uh, long before we ever thought we had brought them up. And in fact, most parents, if you ask them, oh, are your kids concerned about death? Um, they'll often say, no, my kids are more concerned about how they did in first grade on an exam. But if you ask the first graders, they're much more concerned about dying than they are about how they did on a test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we've answered my son's questions about dying and death, it's very interesting because he'll be processing and continue to ask questions. And then very quickly, he'll just change the subject and move on to something very mundane and it's very interesting. It's like his own way of protecting himself or creating a barrier. It's absolutely. And uh, uh, he is not alone in that regard uh, and is anticipating uh, many of the, the defenses that we all typically um, employ uh, as adults. And so in the Yalom book that I talked about, there are transcripts of kids uh, just intensely concerned, two-year-old kids uh, in tears uh, about the prospect of dying. And then as if a light switch had gone off, they're like, oh, and when's lunch? <laughs> and it's it's brilliant to, to be able to pivot like that. And it, it, that's, in fact, a good sign. Uh, and because uh, we would all be traumatized beyond belief if it was the only thing that was explicitly on our minds. Right. Yeah. So he's already building some sort of defenses. And I know going back to how you're talking about some of the ways we manage this terror is embracing our cultural uh, worldviews as well as our self-esteem. Um, can you talk a little bit more about those 
Yes, I certainly can. So we already just covered one way that kids and adults manage death anxiety. And this is not meant to be cynical, but the philosopher Kierkegaard, um, he, he called it being tranquilized by the trivial. Um, we distract ourselves. We watch TV or Netflix or we go shopping, anything to uh, take our mind off the reality of the fact that we're mortal creatures. Uh, another way is to uh, cling tenaciously uh, to our culturally constructed beliefs. And so we know from our experiments that uh, when we remind people of their mortality uh, by asking them to just think about dying or by interviewing them in front of a funeral parlor, or sometimes we bring them into the lab and we have them read things on a computer while we flash the word death for 48 milliseconds, so fast that you can't even see it. And when that happens, patriotic Americans become more patriotic. And people who are religious uh, become more religious. People who are vegetarians become uh, more diligent in advocating uh, for being vegetarians. And so for better and worse, people that hate other people become more hateful and destructive. But uh, one thing that we do is we reinforce, we call it uh, worldview defense, our existing uh, beliefs. We also uh, engage in what we call self-esteem striving. Uh, and so people who consider themselves uh, to be um, the athletes, uh, after they're reminded of death, if they, if they perceive themselves as strong, if you ask them to lift weights, they lift more weight. If they think they're good basketball players, uh, they get uh, more accurate at foul shooting. Uh, and uh, uh, golfers become better golfers. But the general point is that uh, when intimations of mortality are in the air, when death is on our mind, uh, again, mostly unconsciously, um, we strive to bolster confidence in our beliefs and reinforce a sense that we're valuable people. And so why is that? Well, because it is uh, uh, the way that Becker put it, uh, it is that our cultural beliefs and self-esteem, that is the primary means that we buffer death anxiety. So without uh, a sense that life has meaning and that we have value, uh, we would be perpetually overwhelmed uh, with debilitating existential anxieties. So I'm curious, you know, if these worldviews that we have and our sense of self-worth are just paramount in keeping our fears of death at bay, then what happens when either of those break down? Because I'm specifically thinking about the coronavirus and the pandemic right now and how the majority of us feel a lot less safe than we used to. Death is at the forefront of our minds. We're yep. losing people we love. People are losing jobs and there's just so much uncertainty and just the blueprint for how we're supposed to act right now has sort of dissipated. So what happens when these, these worldviews are just falling apart? Yeah, well, no, great question. Uh, and to be silly, if I could answer it, I'd be chugging rum out of a coconut with my Nobel Prize on the beach. But uh, what happens uh, is um, it, it depends. So one thing that happens is that in times of this kind of upheaval, um, we, and when I say we, I mean people in general, often uh, shift their um, affection and allegiance from a cultural worldview to a particular individual. So a, the German sociologist Max Weber, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, he, sa he said that in times of historical upheaval, uh, that's when we embrace what he called charismatic leaders, uh, seemingly larger-than-life individuals 
who say I'm divinely ordained to rid the world of evil. Uh, and uh, uh, what a lot of people write about is, well, that's how Hitler came to power in, in Germany uh, after World War I. So here was the world completely collapsing. Uh, here was a guy who said, oh, I'm going to make Germany great again. And he was actually elected. And of course, it didn't end well. Um, same thing happened in the United States in the aftermath of September 11th, uh, 2001. Uh, the president at the time, George W. Bush, had the lowest approval rating in the history of presidential polling the day before 9-11. Uh, three weeks later, he had the highest uh, approval rating. Uh, and what our experiments indicated at the time uh, was that it was because of death anxiety. We did a dozen or so studies, and we showed that Americans didn't care for President Bush all that much in control conditions, but they liked him a whole lot more uh, when death is on their mind. Um, so we have the same thing uh, with now President Trump, who in 2016 uh, said, oh, uh, only I uh, can save you uh, from economic collapse and terrorists annihilating the country. Uh, and sure enough, our experiments uh, indicated the same thing, that Prior to the last election, our respondents preferred Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump in a control condition, but when they were reminded of their mortality first, uh, they liked now President Trump a lot more. And I'm not saying that anybody who supported uh, President Bush or President Trump is necessarily doing it solely in order to reduce death anxiety, uh, but uh, enough people appear to be doing it to alter the outcome of an election. So one thing that people are doing is to really uh, embrace uh, populist slash charismatic leaders. So that's one thing that people do is they gravitate uh, to political leaders. Another thing that folks do is they uh, gravitate to their core beliefs, let's say religious beliefs, Another thing that people do, and this is a good thing, is they take comfort in their significant others. Uh, when push comes to shove, if we're lucky enough to be surrounded uh, by people that uh, we love and love us, in psychobabble we would call it secure attachments, uh, then we can be comforted by either our direct or virtual contact uh, with our friends and families, some people just become more devoted uh, to things that are of interest or value to them. So avid gardeners might become more avid in their gardening, musicians, dancers, uh, fill in the blank. And for other people, uh, this may just be an opportunity to completely step back and to question the very foundation of their culturally constructed belief systems. I don't want to sound like Mary Poppins or Walt Disney, uh, but the philosopher Nietzsche, uh, he just said sometimes things have to almost totally collapse around us uh, for us to step back and, in his language, to reevaluate all of our values. And so things are terrible right now, uh, but maybe they have to be this terrible. Uh, for Americans or even all of us as citizens of the world uh, to say, wow, um, you know, what do we need to do moving forward? I mean, it, it was the Depression and World War II uh, that got us the New Deal and the Great Society. Uh, and those were, in my mind, the best things that have happened to America. Maybe this will bring out the, the next New Deal and the next Great Society. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I wonder if through any of your studies, there was something that humans do to defend against thoughts of death that really um, surprised you. Wow. Um, well, I got to be honest, uh, all, all of our studies have surprised us in that when we started doing them, it was in the wake of 
a massive criticism of these ideas as being obviously wrong or untestable. And so then we started doing these studies. And the first study that we did was with municipal court judges in, in Tucson, Arizona, where we found that if the, we reminded them of death before they made a judicial decision, uh, that they penalized an alleged criminal like almost 10 times more punitively if death was on their mind to begin with. And so, like, right out of the gate, we're like, wow, uh, you know, here's judges that are taught to administer the law in an even-handed way and reminding them that they're going to die radically altered the uh, nature of uh, their decisions. So in another study done by some Israeli colleagues, uh, Israeli soldiers that were reminded that they were going to die uh, and who derived self-esteem uh, from their driving prowess. This was men, as you might imagine. Uh, they then put them on a driving simulator, and, and these guys drove like lunatics after being reminded of death, presumably to bolster their self-esteem as kind of macho drivers. And so that was also surprising, that we will literally, to avoid death anxiety, do stuff that will likely kill us. Um people reminded that they're going to die, they like eat more cookies and they smoke more cigarettes. If they smoke cigarettes, they drink more alcohol. Um, I guess all of those things uh, have surprised me. Yeah, I bet. And so with defenses, I feel like sometimes they get, uh, they're sort of viewed negatively, um, though sometimes they can be very beneficial. Now, how do you view defenses when it comes to managing our terror of death? No, you just, uh, I think as you suggest, it is um, the idea that we need to manage death anxiety, uh, that in itself is not uh, fundamentally problematic. The question is how uh, we go about doing it and so, uh, you know, so for example, one way to manage death anxiety is to kill people uh, who d don't look the way that we do or who have different customs. Well, uh, at the risk of sounding uh, like a throwback from Woodstock, uh, that's bad. Um, when Americans are reminded that they're going to die, conservative Americans, uh, they're more eager to drop nuclear weapons on countries that don't threaten us. So that would be a malignant form of death denial. On the other hand, securely attached individuals, when they're reminded that they're going to die, if they're in a committed relationship, they become more committed to that relationship. Well, to me, that's good. Uh, people that are reminded that they're going to die if they're asked to give to a charity that it helps somebody in their own group, they'll be more generous. And those are good things. Uh, and so our point has always been uh, that death reminders reinforce existing beliefs and existing ways of buttressing self-worth and that could be benign, benevolent, or malignant, depending on the individual and their particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know you talk about um, proximal defenses and distal defenses. Can you explain those two and how they're different? Yeah, certainly. So the the and that's a great question. And um, so the uh, turns out that um, and it took us ten years to figure this out that. There's different defenses that are initiated in response to conscious and unconscious death thoughts. And so if, if death is on your mind and you know it, uh, that instigates proximal defenses. And those are just um, uh, relatively rational efforts to get death off of, off of your mind. And so uh, you, you notice that there's a, a lump on your neck. And you're like, wow, that might not be good. Uh, so you call the doctor. Uh, well, that would be a proximal defense. I, I might be sick. I'm going to call the doctor. 
uh, or uh, other proximal defenses are just like distracting yourself. It's like, oh, wow, um, yeah, I have this bump uh, on my neck, uh, but you know what? I'm going to watch TV or I'm going to go out and exercise. All right now, that's not necessarily an effective proximal defense, but the idea here is that you're just distracting yourself. All right now, the distal defenses, uh, those are responses to non conscious uh, intimations of mortality, uh, and that would be buttressing the cultural worldview or fortifying self-esteem. And, and so, for example, uh, in one study that our colleagues did in Florida, and I think this is a nice way to illustrate the distinction between proximal and distal defenses, if you remind people in South Florida uh, that if you remind them of their own mortality, and then immediately afterwards uh, you say, you know what, it's going to be sunny today, and that, and that causes skin cancer. And then you ask people, well, the next time you go out in the sun, how long are you going to stay out? And what, uh, uh, how strong a sunscreen are you going to use? Uh, people who are reminded of death, they say, I'm not going to stay out that long and I'm going to use atomic-powered sunscreen. So that would be a proximal defense. You remind people they're going to die and they're like, hey, I'm going to stay out of the sun. Uh, but if you wait 10 or 15 minutes after you remind people that they're going to die, uh, and then you do the same thing. You say, hey, um, uh, being in the sun's bad. Um, what are you going to do the next time you go out? Well, people whose self-esteem is derived from being attractive in a culture where being tan is considered beautiful, they actually say, I'm going to stay out longer and I'm going to use less sunscreen. And so immediately after being reminded of death, the proximal defense is to get out of the sun. But 10 or 15 minutes later, the distal defense, which is to boost your self-esteem, uh, that puts you in the sun longer and using less sunscreen. So here's another example of a distal defense in the service of minimizing anxiety that could ironically kill you. Wow. So I, I can hear that there obviously depends on people's worldviews and what they value. And so how much then is our relationship with death cultural? I mean, have you found that a lot of cultures fear death in the same way and that we cope with it in similar ways across cultures, or is it very culture-specific? Um, great question, and um, this is not anything to be proud of, but we don't know. Uh, and not, that, um, I'm, When I say we, I'm saying I and my colleagues, and this is by virtue of our relative ignorance, we know, for example, that uh, our studies where we remind people that they're going to die, um, those have been replicated by independent researchers in more than 25 countries on five continents. And so we know that death reminders uh, have potent effects um, across time and space. Uh, we also know that cultures have very different ways of coping uh, with death anxiety, uh, and that this is something that anthropologists have studied, you know, for decades. What we've not done yet, and what ought to be done, is to look more specifically at how people in different cultures manage death anxiety. There's a bit of work in this regard, but not nearly enough to make any definitive statements. Yeah, I've wondered just with other cultures, if some cultures are just genuinely less fearful of death. So it's a it's an interesting question to think about. Yeah, I, I'm going to guess yes, because, um, you know, the, in many cultures for most of human history, death was a, a part of life, uh, you know, infant mortality. Um, upwards of 50%, living in small communities where generations of people uh, were housed in the same place, made it inevitable that we would come directly face-to-face uh, -face, uh, with death. 
Um, I can't think of a more death-denying culture than the one in which we currently reside. Uh, we're reluctant to talk about dying. Um, we uh, tend to uh, put the elderly folks, uh, you know, on the shuffleboard court in Florida uh, or Arizona and, and stay away from them as much as possible. Uh, we spend more money on cosmetics and anti-aging um, uh, uh, creams and stuff than we do on education and social services. And, um, yeah, we, more than lots, uh, just don't want to die or even talk about it. And so if distraction is one of our major defenses when we're faced with thinking about our own death, um, what what do you know about people and their relationship with death when they're actually given a terminal prognosis and can't distract themselves from it? I don't think it should surprise us that, you know, that has a way uh, of... Uh, it, a terminal prognosis is a stark reminder of both the inevitability of death and its relative proximity uh, to the individual in question. Uh, and I like uh, Eric Erickson, the um, psychohistorian's uh, way of thinking about it, uh, when he hypothesized, I think in the 1950s and 1960s, that, you know, at the end of our life, there's a psychological fork in the road of sorts. And he made a distinction between what he called despair uh, versus ego integrity. And, and he said that there are some people, uh, for a variety of reasons, who when they get to the end of their lives, it, it just doesn't end well. And that's the despair part. And um, these are folks who, as they get older or they get a terminal diagnosis, if you ask them, well, does life have any meaning? They're like, no, uh, you know, it, it's meaningless. And if you ask them, well, if you could have your life over again, you know, who or what would you be? And they're like, well, I don't know, but not me. You know, I want to be Cleopatra or, or uh, you know, Gandhi or Lady Gaga. Uh, but I don't, I don't want to be me. That, that, that wasn't really worth it. And then if you ask, well, what about death? Uh, they are incredibly fearful and bitter and angry. And all understandable, but all not inevitable. Because on the other side of the proverbial fork in the road it is what Erickson called ego integrity. And, and here the picture is quite different, even in daunting uh, medical conditions. And so folks at the end of their lives, uh, they say, no, even, even if I'm in great pain and I only have a few days or hours to live, life has never been more meaningful. And if you ask them, well, if you could come back and do it again, who would you want to be? They look at you like you're a zombie and they're like, what are you talking about, dude? I, I would want to be me. It's not that I didn't make mistakes. It's not that I might not do some things differently, you know, but if I got another lap on the merry-go-round of life, I, I want to be grabbing for the gold ring as myself. And and then, you know, when you ask them about dying, they're like, yeah, um, of course, I'm apprehensive about dying. You can't really practice, and nobody's come back to tell us what it's like. Uh, but I accept the inevitability of death as a perfectly reasonable price to pay uh, for the privilege of having been alive in the first place. And I, I like how Erickson sums it up. The last line of his book, The Eight Stages of Man, is something along the lines of when parents have the courage to die, their children will have the faith to live. And and I love that because it, it puts everything in perspective in the sense of pointing out that the decisions that we make or decline to make about how we live our lives not only influence our existence, but uh, has a radical effect on the next generation. And that's why I think this is so important. Wow, so how does someone uh, get to that place of acceptance? Uh, great question. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, by the way, these are all awesome questions. I appreciate the quality of your inquiries. Um, it takes a lifetime 
uh, you know, in many cultures, uh, both theologically and philosophically, that's what you're supposed to spend your whole life doing. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, the religious people, there's the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and then you've had the medieval monks, you know, that work with skulls on their desks, not to be morbid, but to remind themselves of the need to, uh, as Albert Camus put it, come to terms with death, thereafter anything is possible. Ditto for the philosophers. I think it was Socrates who said to philosophize is to learn how to die. And so the, the argument is that not that we should spend our lives completely preoccupied uh, with death. That, that, that's not what this is about. So much as to spend enough time throughout our lives um, coming to terms with the reality of the human condition uh, such that uh, we are able to make the most of our lives. Uh, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but I like how Abraham Lincoln put it. It's not the years in your life, it's the life in your years. And, and I do believe the theologians and philosophers and psychologists who point out that you can't have it both ways. You, you can't live a full life uh, while being in total denial uh, of the fact that it will someday end. So being more aware of our own death helps us better find meaning in life? I believe that to be the case, yes. Yeah, it's been interesting with this podcast because obviously I'm doing it for a lot of different reasons. You know, of course I want to help encourage conversation around death and to hear from people who are facing it and what it's like for them and to give them another place to feel free to talk about it in any way that they're experiencing it. And I've also wondered, of course, in the back of my head, how is my own relationship with death going to change as I explore this a lot of my time? And I still feel quite anxious about it. I, I think I feel a little bit more anxious as I continue to explore it, but maybe I'll come out on the other side less anxious. Okay, so that's my hypothesis. Um, if you're not, uh, and what I say to my students is, if you're not a bit more anxious, at least in transition here, then nothing of value is happening. So this is a, 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 a psych psychiatrist, uh, Karen Horney, who I'm very fond of from the 1950s, she just said, look, uh, you know, if, if you're thinking that, you know, you want to think about life and you want to think about becoming a better person, uh, and if you think that anything good's happening and you're not anxious along the way, uh, then with all due respect, uh, nothing of value has transpired. Uh, of necessity, you have to be a little bit anxious because in order to sincerely think about matters pertaining to life and death, you have to momentarily distance yourself from your culturally constructed beliefs that are essentially uh, warding off death anxiety. So there's got to be this kind of middle ground uh, where you are a, a little bit anxious. And yet, uh, and I like how the philosopher Heidegger put this, even though he was a Nazi and I don't like that. But uh, Heidegger said that, you know, we don't like anxiety and, and, uh, and rightfully so, but anxiety can sometimes be indicative of better days ahead. He said, look, anxiety, uh, besides being really negative, and of course we try to avoid it, is also in a way... Uh, very positive because it's a way of summoning yourself to yourself. Uh, Heidegger said, well, sometimes anxiety gives us pause. And he even said that it kind of clears things out and that we can see that uh, regardless of our station in life, that uh, circumstances can shift rather rapidly, just like they are right now. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic where you realize that life may never 
be the same. Here I am, a psychology professor, realizing there may not be any such thing as professors in a few years when all the schools collapse. And, and, but rather than be totally demoralized by that, I can also be uplifted when I realize that I'm still me. Regardless of my circumstances, there are still choices that I can get to make and that um, that could be quite liberating. And I like how Heidegger put it when he said that you can come out on the other side of anxiety, um, anticipating the future, uh, confident of your abilities, concerned about the welfare of your fellow humans, our fellow humans, and then he said it could be a source of unshakable joy. And mm. I love that. Uh, and, you know, I catch glimpses of that even, you know, in the midst of the pandemic. And I don't think I'm being Pollyannish. I, I know that a lot of people are going to die and maybe even me. But I still can't help waking up every day grateful to be alive and having slept in a bed and having had a banana for breakfast. And so I think good things can come from anxiety. Mm -hmm. Right. There's still a lot for us to be thankful for. Um, that's that's right. And I, I wonder, and this is uh, my last question, but I wonder for you and your colleagues studying death basically for nearly 30 years. Um, how has your relationship with death changed from when you first started? Oh, mostly, and again, I, I, I don't want to sound glib here, but uh, I've not been enthusiastic. I've been scared of dying since I was eight, uh, the day my grandmother died, which is the day that I realized that I will someday die. And uh, I uh, honestly, and my Tom and Jeff and I, when we talk about this, we've been doing it for 40 years. And sometimes I think that it's just been an intellectual exercise to distract me from the reality of my own death. And in that sense, it's been no different than having a large pizza and a gallon of soda and 12 cookies. It's just a giant distraction. On the other hand, uh, there are other times when I'm like, no, um, this has really um, been an opportunity for me to think deeply about it and to genuinely become more aware of and comfortable with uh, dying. And maybe it has, but not as much when I think about it as the joy of my kids and my pets and my plants and my neighbors. I, I think what, to the extent that um, that our work has been valuable, it's been to uh, make me a bit more humble, I hope, and to realize that the, the, the garlic growing in my backyard and the walk that I had with my dog and my phone call with my daughter today are no less important than the book that we wrote. I feel the, the same way about the work that I do too. And I think, could it be just a big distraction or is it a way to really examine my own life and um, find additional meaning? And maybe both of those things can be true at once. Absolutely. And that, uh, this is not, uh, you know, trouble times uh, call for some... Uh, we need to be nimble cognitively and emotionally and intuitively. And yes, uh, both. And the, so the key is to keep going and to be able from time to time to discern the difference between distraction and genuine inquiry without being overly harsh on ourselves when we're on the distracted end of things. Right. It's definitely a time to be kind to ourselves. Absolutely. And to others, of course. Yeah, and to others, of course. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sheldon. This has been really wonderful to talk to you and very um, eye-opening as well. My pleasure. And uh, thanks for doing this and to all of the folks that are listening.
Wow. Doesn't Sheldon make you think? I now find myself analyzing my actions through the lens of terror management theory. What subconscious mental gymnastics am I doing to ward off my own death anxiety? Are my defenses helpful or harmful to myself and others? And what kind of effect are all these recent death reminders having on our society? I'm hoping that they will eventually bring us closer together, rather than further apart. But I really don't know. Ask me on any given day, and I might have a different answer. But like Sheldon said, sometimes we need things to totally collapse around us, to reevaluate our values and what matters most. And so just maybe, all of this upheaval will force us to lean on each other more, help each other out, and do the right thing, and bring out the next great society. Fingers crossed. Before we go, I want to return to the conversation with my son, Leon. Well, that's just what happens to our bodies after a while. They just don't work forever. While thinking about how we manage our own death awareness can be quite heavy, some of our defenses can also be quite silly, like Leon's. Here's his wonderful three-year-old way of coping with the recognition of his own mortality. When I die, I have an idea. <laughs> What's your idea? What's your idea? Um, when I die, I can sleep and then I think I'll be old. Mmm. And I'll jump out my back sit and then I'll say, let's get out of here. <laughs> Every time I hear this, I smile. Leon, one day when you listen to this, know that I think you are amazing and that I will be by your side as you explore both the bright and dark sides of life. And thanks again to Sheldon Solomon for making me think deeply about how I want to live, and to Sheldon and his colleagues for their groundbreaking research into death's role in life, which you can read more about in their book, The Worm at the Core, on the role of death in life. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less. <laughs> <laughs>